So uh, I do invite you to turn to Genesis 36, and uh, we'll look at this passage together. Genesis chapter 36. I have to admit, when I first started studying Genesis 36 a few weeks ago, I thought, you know, I might just roll this into Genesis 37 and try to do two chapters, but the more I studied it, the more my heart resonated with it, and I really enjoyed what I saw here and thought there is uh, some profound uh, lessons for us to learn as a church. Again, if you uh, don't have an insert uh, uh, notes, uh, that would be helpful for you to have at this point. I encourage you to do that, and um, if not, just make sure you pay close attention uh, as we go through Genesis 36. We're going to have to work a little bit hard as we go through the text, but it, it'll be worth it. This is God's holy word, and we want to know what it means so that we can apply it to our lives. So today we come to a highly devotional and edifying genre of the Old Testament scriptures called genealogy. You know, so-and-so beget so-and-so, and in this chapter, repeat that 81 times. Um, no doubt, uh, we... Uh, this is the part that many of us skip as we're reading through Genesis, uh, but I think there's some important things for us to see here. Now, in the book of Genesis, um, and hopefully this works, okay, so we're going to be looking at Genesis 36, which talks about what became of Esau, okay, Esau. If you remember what we've seen already in the book of Genesis, the whole book of Genesis is arranged around a statement that is repeated to give you headers for new sections. I love it when the authors of Scripture tell you exactly how the book should be organized. And that's what Moses did for the people of Israel, his original readers, and that's what he did for us. Because as you're reading through Genesis, you will come across the phrase, this is the generation of ten times in your Bible. And it always marks out a new section. And so as we've been working our way through Genesis, uh, we have seen all of these so far. We've seen what became of the heavens and the earth, that's Genesis 2 through 4. What became of Adam, that's Genesis 5 and 6. What became of Noah, that's Genesis, the end of Genesis 6 through Genesis 9. What became of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, that's Genesis 10 and 11. Another discussion then of Japheth in particular, uh, Genesis chapter 11. And then there's the discussion of Terah. Terah, which is really Abraham's story. That's what became of Terah, his son Abraham, Genesis 12 through 25. And then Ishmael, just a short section in chapter 25. And then what became of Isaac? Basically, Genesis chapters 26 through 35, which we've been looking at for the last several weeks, what became of Isaac is what we call the Jacob story. That's what became of him. Um, it narrates Jacob's life and the events of his life. And so now we come to Esau. And there are two uh, descriptions here in Genesis chapter 36 of what became of Esau. A few months ago, I received a Facebook friend invitation uh, from an old grade school friend. Okay, now, believe it or not, I don't get a lot of Facebook friend invitations. Uh, so when I get them, I take them quite seriously. Um, when I got the invitation from my friend, it took some time to, for me to place the name, but then it hit me who he was. We went to grade school together. We actually lived right next to each other. And it had been about 35 years since I had last seen him. He moved away when we were in fourth grade. 
And I don't believe that I've seen him one time since. So when I got an invitation, I wondered, what, whatever became of Jeffrey, my friend? And so um, I did a little exploring. I accepted the invitation, explored his page, and I was struck with two things about Jeffrey, my, my grade school friend. First, he looked nothing like he did in grade school. Well, I, I wouldn't even recognize him if I saw him today. Uh, he's put on perhaps a few pounds, uh, lost some hair. I, I'm sure he wouldn't think the same of me, though, uh, at all. Um, so I was struck with, he doesn't look anything like he did. And then I was struck by the size of his family. Jeffrey now has many kids, from my count, six or seven kids, I think. Back then it was just him, just Jeffrey. But now it's much, much more. And I thought, imagine what a family picture of Jeffrey might look like in another 35 years. When those six or seven children marry and have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren they marry. I thought, you know, another 35 years, that family picture might have 75 people in it. That's what became of Jeffrey. When we come to Genesis 36, we learn what became of Esau. Now, when Moses writes this book originally... His book is written to the original readers who go into the promised land. And for them, it's been about 300 years since Esau died. So perhaps they ask the question, whatever became of Esau? You might know some of the answers. And that's what Genesis 36, verse 1 through Genesis 37, verse 1 are about. So if we're going to understand this text today, we need to observe a few things just very basically before we get into it. If you look down in your Bible at verse 1, you'll see in verse 1 and uh, in verse 8 that this chapter is arranged around two genealogical reports. The first report in verse 1 goes from verse 1 to verse 8. It's a brief record of what became of Esau. And then from Genesis 36 and verse 9 the whole way down to the end of the chapter, and actually including 37 verse 1, you have an extended look. Look at verse 1, you can see this first statement, these are the generations of Esau. Then look at verse 9, starting the second record, these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites. This whole section, uh, the, the first section uh, the first record is brief, and it's framed by a mention that Esau is Edom. Look again at verse 1. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. And then go down to the end of this first record, verse 8. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Okay, so the author, Moses, is trying to mark out the section. He's reminding us Esau is the founder of the Edomite people. Okay, and he, he marks it out at the beginning and the end. The second record is extended, and it runs from Genesis 36, verse 9, down to Genesis 37 and verse 1. And there's some similarities between these reports. Both have a one-verse introduction and a one-verse conclusion. I won't point all of that out to you now. We'll just jump right into it. So as we look at the first brief record, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. Again, it starts with a verse of introduction, verse 1, verse of conclusion, verse 8. 
But Moses begins in the heart of this report by describing Esau's immediate family. Look down in your Bible at verse 2, and uh, we'll, we'll learn from this genealogy. Verse 2, Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Ada, the daughter of Elon, the, the Hittite, Ohalabama, so I said I was practicing these names, that's not Obama, and uh, if you're from the South, it's not Oholibama, uh, which I think I've heard it said that way too. It is Ohalabama, my favorite name for one of his wives, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth, and Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basemath bore Reu, and Ohalabama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. <coughs> so I'll just make a few observations here uh, at the beginning. Uh, first of all, Jacob had how many wives? Do you remember? Jacob. Four wives. Esau has three. Jacob had 12 sons, and what we learn about Esau here is that he has five, five sons. So three wives and five sons. That's his immediate family. These wives and sons here begin a list, a long list in this chapter of 81 names that come from Esau. Some of those names are actually quite difficult to pronounce. And as I was thinking about reading through these with you today, I thought, you know, this could be a helpful chapter for any expectant mother here today. Uh, considering names, Chris is probably pretty glad I was not studying this chapter whenever uh, we named our kids, uh, but perhaps there'll be one in here for you. Now, I, I want to make a few observations about Esau's immediate family, okay? And so in your notes, if you're following, there are some bullet points in the handout I gave to you, and you could fill in some of these facts. First, Esau has three wives. Aholabama becomes an important wife later in the chapter, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off some comment on her. Probably the easiest name to pronounce is Esau's wife named Basemath, uh, which means balsamic or fragrant. Uh, she is the sister of Ishmael. But uh, th those are his wives. Of his sons, the oldest son, Eliphaz, is quite interesting to me. Eliphaz, I believe, is of great importance in another section of Scripture. So I want you to do me a favor, keep your finger here and turn in your Bible Back to the book of Job. Turn in your Bible to Job. Especially Job chapter 1. There's a great deal of debate uh, about the book of Job, and especially the setting and timing of Job's life. Where did he live exactly? When did he live? Is he contemporary with Abraham? Is he older than Abraham? How do we know? And most commentators say you just can't be sure. But in my opinion... Esau's genealogy in Genesis 36 gives us the setting and the timing of Job's book. I don't know if you've ever seen this before, or perhaps if you would agree with me. Perhaps you remember how the book of Job starts out, right? Job chapter 1, and uh, near the beginning there, verse 6, uh, well, really on two occasions, Satan comes with the sons of God to, to God, and he asks for permission to tempt Job to touch his family and possessions, and then later himself. So uh, in 
Job 1 and verse 6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, and he asked him to consider Job there, and, and Satan asked for permission to take away Job's possessions and children. And that's what happens through the, the rest of chapter 1. But then Satan comes back at Job 2 and verse 1. So look there, Job 2 verse 1. Again, there was a day. When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And then what happens is the Lord explains to Satan that Job has not sinned in any way. You took away all of his stuff. You took away all of his children. I mean, if you read chapter 1, I mean, you just see that just terrible things happen to Job. Yet he doesn't sin. And so Satan says, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if, we can, if I can touch his flesh, you know, skin for skin, if I can... If I can afflict his physical body, then he will sin. And so he asked for permission for that, and that occurs as well. Satan is given permission by God to afflict Job's physical body with loathsome sores from the sole of his feet the whole way up to the crown of his head. And in response to this, Job, you remember Job scrapes his sores with broken pottery, and he sits in an ash heap, but then God sends strong consolation to him, right? Strong consolation. First, he sends his wife. You remember what his, his wife said to him? Chapter 2, curse God and die. Well, that's some real encouragement. So glad for that contribution. Curse God and die, yet he won't sin. And then, perhaps even worse than his wife's counsel, he has three friends who come by. You remember these people? And actually, a good portion of the first half of the book of Job is is the criticism, I mean the counsel, of these three. And look in your Bible at chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all, the, the, all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite. Now, it's my very strong opinion that Job's friend Aliphaz is the Aliphaz of Genesis 36, the oldest son of Esau. You say, but couldn't the name Eliphaz be a common name during this time? How do you know it's the same one? I say, sure, it's common, but I think that there are other clues that would point us in this direction as well. In chapter 2 and verse 11, notice what Eliphaz is called. He's called the Temanite. This means he was of the Temanite people, or that he came from a, a town named Teman. Back in Genesis chapter 36 and verse 11, keep your finger here still, stay here, but back in verse 11, Moses tells us that Eliphaz, the son of Esau, had sons, and his oldest son was named Teman. His oldest son is Teman. You remember uh, a while back in Genesis, we're introduced to a father and a son who were two evil men. The father was a king. Uh, his name was Hamar, and his son was named Shechem. And they're both involved in the, the rape of Dinah. Remember this narrative when we went through it? We learned not only that in Genesis, but we also learned that Shechem, the name of this boy, was also the name of the city that he lived in. And I suggested that Hamar likely named the city in honor of his son, 
And so Hamar lived in Shechem with his son Shechem. And I think it's a fairly common thing during this time for a father to do this, to name his resident area after his son. So perhaps Eliphaz named his residence after his oldest son, Tema. And the people that belonged there were Temanites. Now further, if you're still back in Job, earlier in Job, we are told where all of this story takes place, in a mysterious place called the land of Uz. See that? Look at Job 1.1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Okay, not the land of Oz, the, the land of Uz. Okay, but again, commentators really struggle to identify where is this at? They think Uz is in northern Arabia or Edom, but but I think a strong clue is given to us back in the genealogy of Genesis 36. So go, why don't you go back there, and I'll show it to you. Just remember, land of us. You got that? This is where Job is from, land of us. So you go back to Genesis 36. And as Mo- Moses is working his way through the descendants of people related to Esau, he closes out a section by mentioning the sons of a man named Dishon, and his two sons were us and Aaron, verse 28. Why don't you look at verse 28 with me? Genesis 36, verse 28. These are the sons of Dishon, Uz and Aaron. This descendant, Uz, also likely had a city not too far away from where the Temanites lived. And so I think it's very possible that Job receives counsel from Esau's son, oldest son Eliphaz, in the land of Uz, not too far away uh, from uh, where his people live. In other words, I think the events of Job's life occur during the same time as this section in Genesis 36. You can take Job and you can insert that book right here in this genealogy. Having said that, there's one other observation I want to make. So uh, there's these three bullet points I give you in line. I don't know how you're taking notes. Perhaps you filled all this stuff, or you don't have anything in any of them. But the third uh, observation I want to make about Esau's immediate family is Esau's first three sons all have names that contain the name of God. So if you're reading here through the text, you find Eliphaz. That name means my God is pure gold. Then his second son that's born to him is named Reul, which means friend of God. And then the third son that's born to him is Jeush, and that means Jehovah helps. So it's interesting to me if Esau's first three sons all have names that have an attachment to God. But what you find out as you keep reading through the list is No other names in this list have any mention of God after those first three. As a matter of fact, the last two names in the entire list are connected to false gods. If you look down at verse 39, again, I'm just pointing out a few things I think that would be important to know. Verse 39, Bel-Hanan, the son of Akbor, died. Bel-Hanan means Baal is gracious. The Canaanite god, Baal. And after he died, 
uh, verse 39, and Hadar reigned in his place. Hadar is the best known, best known as the name of a Syrian god, also known among the Canaanites as Baal. And so it's striking to me to see such development within Esau's generations. Remember the story of my friend Jeffrey and what would become of different generations. In Esau's descendants, the first three sons are connected to God. Then a long silence regarding God, Yahweh, Jehovah. And then at the end, we find there are false gods connected with this family. There's degeneration that occurs here in this section. Last week, I gave you a, a comment from Gordon Wenham about Esau. He said, when Esau left the land, he walks out of the record of saving history. And as I consider Esau and what became of Esau in these first few verses, even studying his immediate family, I'd say um, that he is an example of walking away from God and the ramifications and effect that that has upon your, your whole family. Now Esau's degeneration starts in verses 6 and 7, and I want you to see that as well in a section about his imminent departure. Look, look in your Bible at verse 6. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, all his property, that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. Esau's degeneration begins when he leaves the land of promise. Verses 6 and 7, Esau makes a tragic decision. He not only leaves his family roots, he walks away from the land of blessing that God had promised to his brother Jacob. And the results become disastrous for him. Instead of remaining in Canaan, Esau takes everything he has and goes lock, stock, and barrel to the south and the east of the Dead Sea to a, a, a land that is originally called Seir. Okay? And I've got a little bit of a map here. You say it's southeast of the Dead Sea. And it later becomes known by the name Edom. And so at this point, he leaves, he goes to Edom, and that's the brief description of what happens to Esau and his descendants. There's a rise to power and autonomy in their own land, south and east of the Dead Sea. That's the short story of what becomes of him. But I want to uh, go to the second half the second genealogy, and look at the extended look that Moses gives us here of Esau. Moses takes an extended look at Esau's descendants, and this section also has a one-verse introduction and a one-verse conclusion. Verse 9 is the introduction. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. And then a conclusion, which is Genesis 37 and verse 1. But in between those introductions and conclusions, there are three parallel points that he will make that I think will help you be a better reader of this section and will help you walk away with knowing what the most important pieces of this are. And so uh, at the bottom of the slide there, you see the first section is a section I would call the Sons and Chiefs of Esau from verses 10 through 19. He talks about sons and grandsons of Esau in verse 10. Through 14. You can see there right at the beginning of verse 10, these are the names of Esau's sons. 
But then at verse 15, he says, these are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. So this section is about the sons and chiefs of Esau. Start by looking at his sons. Look with me at verse 10. It says, these are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau. Reuel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. Sons of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Zepho, Gotham, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Reuel, Nathan, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Bathmath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ohalabama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. In this section of the genealogy, as he's talking about sons, he mentions the five sons of Esau again, but then he walks it down another generation, and he lets us know that these five sons give him ten grandsons. After giving this list of sons and grandsons, it seems that Moses basically repeats the list with one subtle twist in verses 15 through 19. So I'm going to read through there, and let's see if you can pick it up. Look at verse 15. These are the, the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs, Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gadam, and Amalekek, uh, Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, the chiefs, Natah, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of rule in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife, these are the sons of Ohalabama, Esau's wife, the chiefs, Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs, born of Ohalabama, the daughter of Ana, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. Okay, so verses 15 through 19, what's the twist? What's the new mention here that we didn't see in the, the other part? You hear a word repeated a few times? Chiefs, I'm glad someone got it. Someone's following along with us here. Chiefs, in the ESV, it's, uh, it's translated nine times. In the original, it's translated 18 times, over and over again. Chief, 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 chief. And so now he's going to talk about the chiefs of Esau among his sons. Now with this word, Moses informs his readers that Esau's people start out with great strength and numbers. Moses reveals that each son became the leader of a tribe or a clan of people. The word chief likely is related to the word for clan of a thousand people, indicating that each of these sons and grandsons became the head of a large group of people in the land of Edom. These are the sons and chiefs of Edom. That's the first part of the extended genealogical record. What he's trying to show us is Esau is growing quickly. And so these are just not normal sons. They became the head of major clans and tribes of people that will populate the land of Edom. Now, the second part, verses 20 through 30, also has sons and chiefs, but it's of a different man by the name of Seir. And to understand this section, I, there are really two questions we need to answer. Okay, the first question is, who is Seir? Seir was the founder of the original inhabitants of the land of Edom. Esau intermarries with the people of Seir, 
when he marries my favorite wife's name in this text, Ohalabama. Okay, when he marries Ohalabama, he marries into Seir's people. Esau's people then eventually intermarry with the original inhabitants of the land, and these original inhabitants, the Horites, they get absorbed into Esau's people. Okay. So what happens here is Esau is strong. His descendants are strong, and they overcome the original inhabitants of the land. Now let's read about the sons and chiefs in verses 20 through 30 before we answer our second question. Look at verse 20. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Lotan, Shobal, Zimeon, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Eden. The sons of Lotan were, Lotan were Hori and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Elvin, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Allah, or Aya and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. Aren't you thankful for that clarification? <laughs> that Anna. Okay. Verse 25, these are the children of Anna, Dishon and Ohalabama, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdon, Eshbon, Ithran, and Cheron. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zabon, and Akan, these are the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aran. In verse 29, he starts talking about chiefs. These are the chiefs of the Horites. The chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zimeon, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishon. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief, in the land of Seir. The second important question to answer when you're trying to figure out what's going on here is why is th this record of the people of Seir included in Genesis chapter 36. And I think it's to show this. Although the people who originally inhabited the land of Edom, Seir and his people, were strong and numerous, were powerful, with many sons and chiefdoms, Esau's people were stronger still. God had promised, if you remember, that Abraham would become the father of many nations. And at the beginning here, we see a sudden and powerful rise of Edom and his clan, or Esau and his clans and people. Now, I'm not going to read verses 30 through 40, okay, and you're probably quite thankful for that. I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter, but what happens in the third part is the kings and chiefs of Edom are described. Okay, so there's a little bit of development, and so we've been talking about sons and chiefs, but then what Moses does is he gives us a list of eight kings that reigned among the Edomite people. And then a final list of chiefs uh, as well. We're not going to read all of the names and places, but it seems that the rest of this chapter is also emphasizing that Esau enjoys uh, this sudden early rise. Esau enjoys things well before Israel gets them. If you remember what happens to Israel, Israel will have to wait several hundred years before they can even enter into the promised land. It'll be quite a long time before they ever have a king. And before they ever have a king and they ever have land, Edom has kings and land. And again, that is to show us the early rise of these people. 
Edom enjoys strength of territory and kings. But although we won't read the rest of this chapter, I do want to close by reading a section of a prophet that tells us what eventually becomes of the Edomite people. There's a prophet who wrote a book in the Old Testament. His name was Obadiah. He wrote the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's 23 verses. And Obadiah's prophecy is a word of prophecy against Edom, the people of Esau. And I want to read portions of his prophecy to you. Look at verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. And a messenger has been sent among the nations. Get down to verse 8. Will, will I not on the day, on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. I also thought it'd be helpful to look at verse 18. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor, no survivor, for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. So I went through this text, I thought, you know, Esau is an example of the consequences of sinful choices made in our life, and sometimes how that impacts even our family and our descendants. Perhaps there are children here who are biding their time until they can get out, of their own, get out on their own and do their own thing. You can't wait to get away from all of the religion and all of the rules. Won't you learn from Esau? Esau, who went away to destruction. He left to establish his own way, to do his own thing for himself, and in the process does nothing for God, and great darkness rests over his posterity. Don't exchange the gospel that your parents have taught you from your youth for the trinkets and treasures of this world. As I consider Esau, I couldn't help but think of the warning that John gives us in 1 John 2, verse 15. Maybe you know this warning. John says, love not the world. Do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I cannot but think of warning each one of us who consider walking away from the glories of the gospel that we've learned in Jesus Christ with the warning that the author of Hebrews gives when he says, let us not be unholy and profane like Esau. He turned his back on God to pursue the world's things. Instead, 
may we commit to do the will of God and abide with him forever. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for our people who worked diligently to get through two genealogical records. Two records of a man who started off well, who had prosperity, who had riches, who had his own land, who had many sons and grandsons and great-grandsons, who had chiefs, whose people had kings. Picture of strength. Yet, one day, a prophet comes and pronounces the final judgment of God upon this man and his people. Because they were not concerned with the blessing of Abraham. They were not concerned with the message of salvation that would come through the seed of Abraham. Lord, perhaps I know it's been a challenging text to work through, but my heart does go out for our people. For anyone here, I know I identified young people, but it could be any one of us. Who would count the cost <laughs> Cost and look to the allure of this world? And would say, I'm done with this religion. I'm done with the restrictions, with the rules. I want my own way. I want my own stuff. I want to establish my own heritage. I pray that we would not be tempted to do this. But Lord, that you would give us strength so that we would see the gospel that we've been taught, the gospel of Jesus Christ that our parents perhaps have taught us. That it is so much better. Jesus is so much better than the desires of this world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Because this world is currently passing away and its desires are as well. They will not last. They will not endure. I pray that someone today might learn from the example of Esau and decide that they will stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they will be like the Apostle Paul as he concludes the book of Galatians, saying, but God forbid that I should glory in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. May we not be like the foolish Galatians that quickly desert or abandon the gospel that we've been taught. But may we, like Paul, say there's nothing more that I want in this world than to know him, to enjoy the fellowship of his sufferings, to be made conformable like him in his death. I pray that that would be true of our believers here. I pray that we would all learn from Paul and say, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I pray that you do this work in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.